0: Hi, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. want to especially thank three new members of the Future of Agriculture community, David Dahl, Peter Schott, and Bill Jacobs. Uh, thank you guys for joining, and please join them and others over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. You might have noticed the title of this episode is Changing Agriculture with Small Robots, and I actually don't think that's hyperbole. The episode is not just about tiny tractors or a.k.a. small robots, but it's actually about a different way to look at precision agriculture. What I mean by that is up to this point, much of precision agriculture was made to fit existing equipment on a sprayer, a tractor, a combine. Uh, this, of course, has been essential for adoption because uh, obviously a farmer to try something new out every time they have a new sensor, they are not going to go buy a new piece of equipment. But of course, it does have its limitations. But what if the equipment itself was optimized for digital ways of monitoring, weeding, planting, and treating crops? That's what the team over at Small Robot Company is doing, and we have one of their founders, Sam Watson-Jones, on the show today. Based in the UK, Small Robot Company has built a system that not only monitors crops, but can autonomously take action in many ways on that data it is collecting and analyzing. Uh, They call their AI, or the brains of the operation, Wilma. The three robots they've built so far are Tom, who does crop monitoring and mapping, Dick who does autonomous non-chemical weeding with the rootwave technology we featured on this podcast in episode 121. And Harry, who does precision drilling and planting. Yes, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Oh, by the way, they did a crowdfunding campaign, which raised over 2.1 million pounds, which if I did my conversion correctly, I think, is over $2.7 million crowdfunded for their startup in the U.K., Uh, We don't get into the crowdfunding campaign because the interview actually took place before it happened, but what we do get into are several insights related to ag tech entrepreneurship, creative technologies, and business models to rethink the future of agriculture. The company definitely has some catchy branding with the old Tom, Dick, and Harry and Wilma being the brains, but the concepts here are absolutely no joke. Uh, Plus, Sam has a cool British accent, so although this episode is long, uh, it'll keep your attention, both the insights and the accent. (laughs) In 2011. After a college degree and some time in education, sales, and management consulting, Sam returned to the family farm, and that's where our interview begins. Here is my interview with Sam Watson Jones of the Small Robot Company. I
1: had a few years away from the farm before I before I went back home, but I went back to the family farm in sort of 2011. And, and I suppose immersed myself in, in everything to do with, in everything to do with farming. We're a 1200 acre arable farm with a poultry unit as well. And I guess after a couple of years of doing that, realized to what extent uh, the business model that we were using was, was, was broken, I suppose, and, and wanted to start thinking about, okay, well, are there new ways of, are there new ways of, of, of changing the way that we, that we farm that could be, that could, that could, that could, that could well, change the way we farm. You know, are there new technologies coming into farming that we could adopt? Are there new ways of looking at things? And I suppose what I what I started with was trying to look at the way the world was going, so I could see that the the, the precision farming, for example, was a was a big global trend that was happening, and there were lots of lots of our neighbours, lots of my friends who were investing in precision farming, and and I suppose. None of it really felt like enough. So if we looked at the two big ones that were that were that were happening in the UK at the time, it was all about auto steer, so satellite on the satellite receiver on your on your tractor, and it was about variable rate spraying. And I thought, okay, well that's 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 good. Like there's there is there is progress there because I can see that it could save us money. The investment case is perhaps a little bit shaky, but I could see there's 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 some money to be saved there, and I can see there are environmental benefits, and both of those things are are really important. But I suppose my my main takeaway from from looking at the different things that were available was it's it's not far enough. You know what we're kind of doing with precision farming in its current state, and by the way, in its current state, it's a five billion dollar a year industry. In its current state, is we are we are taking taking a machine that has essentially been designed to be as fast as possible, a thirty six meter sprayer, a forty two meter sprayer, whatever it might be, and and then we are retrofitting precision technology to that to that machine to make it a little bit more precise. Yeah. Well, I thought actually there was more we could do with technology to get it even more precise. So that's when we started to think about, that's when this, this notion, I suppose, of what if we were able to do things on a per plant basis? What if we could take precision agriculture and turn it into per plant precision agriculture? What would the what would the benefits be? And my thinking along those lines took me towards some work that was going on at a local university, to me, a place called Harper Adams in the Midlands. And at Harper Adams, they were doing some really interesting stuff around small smart machines, looking at what the future of, of the tractor could look like. And, but, but the bit that really grabbed me was this notion that actually if we had small smart machines, maybe that's the technology that we could use to not only gather data in a per plant way, but also eventually take action in a per plant way. And then through Harper Adams, I met Ben Scott Robinson who then became my my co-founder. and the, the, the journey went from there really. I mean I think so that was that was kind of three years ago and And so three years ago today, I was on the farm full time, you know working working as a, as a, as a farm manager, I suppose. And now I'm still involved in the farm but 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 I've had to delegate almost all of the the day-to-day management and I am fully committed to, to helping to run small robot company and,
0: and what did you see back then that convinced you that the the business model of farming was broken
1: The, the finances were I suppose the first thing that, that 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 jumped off the page and and there was there was a definite Moment when it hit me, I'd been trying to explain to my dad what what an Excel spreadsheet was. He he wasn't he wasn't completely clear. Everything everything he he'd recorded on the farm was recorded in these red notebooks, and they were stacked up high in the uh, in a storage unit above our above our farm office. And he'd carried on the same tradition as my as my grandfather. So we had these great records of the of the farm, but they were all manually written down. So I, I said, right, okay, I'm just going to take a day, and I'm just going to convert this stuff into a into a spreadsheet so that we can actually have a look at it and analyze it and so i started in sort of the mid-1980s and i went right through to this was 2016 i think when i was doing this went right through to 2016. so it was a good chunk sort of 30 to 40 years of of data there and then i plotted it on a graph and one of the first things i plotted of course was yield and the thing that just hit me square in the face was that the yields that we were producing in the late 80s early 90s were the same yields as we were producing in 2016 and obviously we'd had we'd had good years and bad years but for for most of our major crops so wheat barley oats we had yeah it it was it was the same figure that we were producing per hectare but obviously the the cost of producing that yield over that 30 year period has increased Really significantly. You know, the, the wages that we we're paying our guys, the, the the cost of the machinery, the cost of the fuel, the cost of all the inputs, all of those things had gone up. So I said, well, this doesn't work from a finance perspective. We're just we're doing exactly the same as we were 30 years ago. We're just making less money at it. And so that was the the first thing. And then and then as I started to dig into what what other farmers had done about that, it was all about it was all about scale. So it was all about bigger machines. Get across the land more quickly. Don't worry about the detail. Just just cover the land, and you'll and you'll reduce your your spread, your fixed cost out and you'll be fine. And what I was really concerned about there was the environmental impact. So bigger machines just didn't make sense to me, because because bigger machines meant more cultivation, and that led. You know, I was, I, at the time I was reading a lot about soil and soil health and soil biology and. And increasing my understanding of of what was going there, going on there, made me just think, right. Well, soil. We, we've got to whatever we do has got to prioritize soil health, and thinking only in terms of scale is not is not going to get us there. And also, and and the the thinking in terms of scale was was as a result of was as a, as a result of the of, of the of the shrinking margins over time. If that made sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make sense. And were were you from a technology background? How did you make the leap from there? I see where the thought process would go, but my mind at some point in that mix would get to the point where I'd say, oh, well, that's cool. I wish somebody would do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that was exactly right, Tim. And that was my my initial thought. So I went to there was actually quite a key conversation with. So my background is not in technology at all. My background is in business management. Really, I had a career as a management consultant in London before before coming back to the back to the farm. So business management, strategy, those sorts of things. And the had a key conversation with a guy at Harper Adams. Someone called Professor Simon Blackmore. He's, he's retired now, but but he was really influential in in shaping my thinking at an early stage. And what he said was this uh, small smart machines so he was he was really thinking about it from an engineering perspective and it's not the same as what small robot companies do, doing but 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 from his perspective he was thinking okay small smart machines instead of big tractors and he was saying you know I know that that people people want this I know that farmers want this because I've spent 15 20 years going around talking to farmers and they and they are keen and I know that the technology exists to enable it to happen because we're doing university projects and that's showing that the technology can work, albeit at a small scale. And what needs to the the gap is is between what is what is technically possible and what's actually happening on farm. And and there needs to be, and these were his exact words because they stayed with me, he said there needs to be an entrepreneur that sits in the middle between technical possibility and and an on-farm reality. And and even though I didn't have a background as an entrepreneur, I just thought that's that's got to be me. That's got to be me. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna chuck myself in there and, and work out a way to to do it and then the the next stage was because the thing that kills so many entrepreneurial ideas I think is you think well how is that going to happen how, how do I how do I do that and the, the the thinking shift that I went through was from from thinking thinking how to thinking who and this was influenced by I was I was investing in a, a coaching program there's a great US and Canadian based coaching program actually called strategic coach that I would recommend to any entrepreneur listening to this great great program it's a group coaching program and they have this concept of of who not how and and so the idea is yeah don't think don't think how are you going to do this because that'll kill the that'll kill the innovation and the inspiration think who is there that can that can help me do it so my first who was okay well if we're going to get something off the ground we need an experienced entrepreneur who's been there and done that and so that was ben that was my that was my co-founder ben we we worked together and And worked out okay, what could this look like what could the what could the product be who could the customers be and we and we refined that over time and then the next who was was obviously a technical who and that was joe so it was it was us three for for quite a while and joe is still our our cto today and he had a really good hardware and software background and just a real technical problem solver so we started talking about okay well how are we going to create these these autonomous units, these machines that can navigate themselves? And Joe Joe set himself to doing that. Okay, how are we going to identify an individual plant from a from an image? And Joe set himself to doing that. And then it's been a series of who's from then on. You know, we go okay. Well, we need someone who knows knows about artificial intelligence, right? Let's go let's go and find someone, find some funding for it. And some of that has been equity funding. Some of that's been government funding. And yeah, we need an AI expert, we need a data scientist, we need a mechanical engineer, we need an electronics engineer. And the world, is, the world is full of people who know how to do all of these things. And I think what has been the most exciting part of the journey for me has been focusing these, these amazing brains that we've found around the world on the problem of farming and on thinking about, okay, what do we want the future of food production to look like? And for many of them, this is something that they'd never thought about as being an interesting problem to to, 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 to get get involved with. And so that has been the really exciting bit for me. And so so I spend most of my time trying to get the the vision, if you like, clear for for where we're going to go and how it leads from where we are today, which is important, because this is not you know and I'll, I'll outline exactly what I mean as by by what I think the future is going to look like um, shortly but it's not like a a crazy leap into the future for me it is a logical progression from where we are from where we are today and the exciting bit has been about yeah trying to articulate that so that you can get customers on board you can get farmers on board you can get people who are willing to pay you for what you're doing you can get investment but also so you can get so you can recruit you know and, and that's a that's a, a key thing that I spend a lot of my time doing is trying to convince very clever people that this is a this is a good use of their uh, this is a good use of their brain power.
0: Yeah, and let's get into that a little bit more. You've talked about the big problem, which is you know as far as farming, the only way it seemed that people were making it work were were by getting bigger and buying bigger equipment and the impact that was going to have on on a lot of things. But but what about the the more specific problems that you decided? Okay, as we grow this company we want to focus on solving this very specific problem and, and I, I know you know for you that that ends up being kind of monitoring as well as precision spraying but tell me about kind of how you arrived at those problems and, and maybe a little bit more about the solution
1: yeah so so we had this here yeah, this this broad vision of per plant precision and, and we thought okay what where where's that where could that be useful and so again we went back to rather than trying to Counter trend, if you like, rather than trying to sort of turn turn the world against itself or or move in a different direction to to where the world's going. Let's think about what are the things, what are the inevitable trends that are that are happening. And a a big one in the UK and in Europe has has been around the the efficacy of chemicals, Um, particularly well in in all in all forms. But a big concern, a big immediate concern, was around the effectiveness of herbicides so what we've seen in europe is okay so first global trend people are becoming more aware of the impact of farming on the environment and they are becoming more aware of the volume of chemicals that we are that we are using to 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 manage a conventional farming system one of the impacts of that has been in europe there's been some very strong lobbying groups that have that have come together environmental lobby groups and they have successfully lobbied to have a good number of the active ingredients that we use removed from, from 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 the market, so banned effectively. And and the the impact of that, so we've got a narrower range of active ingredients that we're using to control our weeds. And the impact of that has been, of course, that there's been an increase in, in resistance amongst those weeds. So same way, you know, I'm sure many people listen to this will be completely aware of this, but in the same way as if you only ever used one antibiotic to treat a a particular a particular disease. Eventually, the disease would mutate, and it would become entirely ineffective. The, the same thing is happening in in agriculture. So, d- at the extreme end, there are lots of people that I have spoken to who are now either ex farmers or ex arable farmers, because they've said, "Well, we just we just couldn't make the chemicals work, and so we just we, we just had to give up the weeds." The weeds just outcompeted what we were doing, and we and we had to give up. And so we we thought, okay, well, the there has to be some better way of doing that. I mean, and and the other the other the particular chemical that I would that I would emphasise would be glyphosate. And many of your listeners again will be aware of the big case that was successfully brought against Monsanto around glyphosate usage. There is a growing Anti glyphosate movements. France has banned it for many uses. Germany looks as though it could be could be next, and we are waiting in the UK for for when that gets when that gets banned. Now, many systems, many farming systems, no-till farming being being perhaps amongst the 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 foremost, are almost entirely reliant on on glyphosate. So, if we're seeing these chemicals, if we're seeing firstly the effectiveness of these chemicals reducing. And if we're seeing these chemicals being banned, we need to think of a better way to do this. Now, our better way of doing this is that we develop a, a scanning robot. We call that robot Tom. So the three robots that we're talking about building in time are Tom, Dick and Harry. The first one, Tom, is a scanning robot. So Tom goes out into the field and using artificial intelligence, he takes, well, sorry, first of all, he takes really highly accurate, very detailed images of the crop growing beneath him. The first crop we're looking at is wheat. And then he uses artificial intelligence through our software platform that we call Wilma. is, if you like the brains of the operation, the boss. It's always very important to have a woman in charge. To, <laughs> it's always it's worked well for me. And the the so the brains, if you like, looks at these images and then uses artificial intelligence to recognize the difference between a weed and between wheat and then we use we do all of that that analysis in the cloud if you like and then we use a second robot we call that robot Dick to go out into the field and kill those weeds without using chemicals and that that is the bit that we're that we're working on now so we kind of have the scanning bit the let's go into the field kill that weed without using any chemicals is is the bit we're working on now and the way we do that is, so we use this per plant recognition, and then we have a highly accurate electrically charged arm, a wand, if you like, that touches a leaf on a weed, sends an electrical charge through that weed, and then kills it without, without using any chemicals. And we think that, well, we know that there's a there's a huge market out there for that. You know, if I was to take one very specific example there's a weed called blackgrass, which is actually quite—it's quite, it's quite a, a specific problem. So it only really affects a few countries in in northern Europe, but it's such a big problem because it is highly resistant, mutates very quickly, and each plant has about ten thousand seeds. So if you miss a plant, it's it's a big problem, and it's it's also very biologically quite similar to wheat. Um, so it's a difficult one to control with with chemicals. That so it only affects about twenty thousand farms in the world, but those twenty thousand farms collectively spend seven hundred and fifty million pounds a year con- controlling it. Wow! So that's our you know that's our first big big target. Yeah. But 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 I think there are going there's going to be you know billions of of dollars spent on on non chemical weeding approaches because. Because it's as I say, it's it's this global trend that is inevitable. You know, the the world is the world is moving in that direction, and the farmers want it. You know, if the if farmers if farmers could control their weeds without using any chemistry at all, they would be they they would be keen because because it enables it for some farmers. It actually opens up whole new markets. You know, enables them to maybe market their their products as as organic. But for for even farmers who are not thinking about going organic, to be able to communicate. The fact they're not using chemicals to consumers is a really important point that the farmers are really on board with
0: yeah definitely and we we've actually had uh, andrew dipros from rootwave who i know you're working with on that great. yeah he's been on the show, yeah, well, on the show before How-
1: has he great well congratulations to Rootwave. they just this morning announced they've just raised a 6.5 million euro series a wow so uh, yeah those guys are going really well and we're so yeah so we're thank you for bringing andrew up we're, we're partnering with rootwave to deliver this non-chemical weeding so rootwave have this great non-chemical weeding technology. And the innovation that we're bringing is that we're going, okay, well, let's take this handheld device and let's, let's fit it onto our autonomous robot. And so, yeah, it's great to have two UK startups working together on this
0: yeah definitely
1: and i want to talk a little bit more
0: because because i agree i think you know there's no farmer that gets excited about going out and buying chemicals and spraying chemicals but there is a little bit of a paradigm shift here from buying a product and applying it versus your model which is what you call farming as a service so so maybe explain your model and how that's a little bit different from a farmer who may be used to just kind of buying and applying
1: yeah so it is it's, it's a model that many farmers will be familiar with really it's it's very it's a it's sort of the next step on from a contracting model. So it is it is rather than selling these robots to you, it is leasing them out on a on a per hectare basis. And the reason that we've gone down that route is really to to remove the barriers to adoption for for farmers. So yeah, many farmers will will uh, lease in you know at least some operations that they that they do each year spraying maybe or or manure manure spreading or something like that this is going to operate in a in a very similar way but we are delivering a service around yeah a non non chem, non chemical weeding will be will be will be the first thing and really this is yeah as i say it's about reducing the barriers to adoption so rather than saying well i'm going to spend 60,000 pounds on a brand new robot which may indeed be be obsolete in 18 months' time because this technology is moving so quickly. Rather than that, I'm going to pay for a weeding service. So I know I'm always going to get the latest hardware and I'm always going to get the latest software. I don't need to worry about the updates. And then I try it out on 10% of my land. And if it works, that's great. I'll double it to 20% or, or 40% or whatever the following year. But you you get to build a long-term relationship with these guys. Mm. and demonstrate your your usefulness to them and start to yeah build build trust and and a, and a, a long term long term view of what we're trying to do together. Great. Is really the thinking behind the service model, yeah.
0: Yeah. Alright this question may sound stupid but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> uh, what's the difference between a a robot and a tractor? You seem very intentional on on calling your equipment a robot but it Essentially, is doing the same work that a tractor would do, and and there's been tractors that have become much smarter along the way. So, where's kind of the difference in your mind between a robot and a tractor?
1: The, no, I mean the, the 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 difference, I suppose, is 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 in, is in some ways academic, you know, because you could get if you automated a tractor, would you call that would you call that a robot? The 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 difference is really around the accuracy of what we're of what we're delivering, right? So. So what we are what we are trying to do is to is to deliver the technology that enables per plant precision agriculture. Okay, so so that is being able to recognise each individual plant in the field, being able to identify what is happening with the, the ultimately in the full vision of what we're trying to achieve, what is happening with the the disease status of each individual plant, what's happening with the nutrient status of each individual plant. Built into that is a much more granular understanding of the of the soil. So whatever that looks like, that's 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 what we that's what we will create. You know, whatever is is going to deliver on that level of accuracy. Now the tractor looks like it does because it is an automation of the horse or it's the mechanization of the horse. You know, and it is it is been designed to do the same job as the horse did but for that to be but to be much much more powerful now the next the next innovation is to go okay let's so let's not design something that is designed to be as fast as possible which is what the tractor is and that's why tractors have got bigger and why the machines they pull have got bigger let's design something to be as accurate as possible and the significance of this per plant vision in the fullness of time is that yeah you you get to you get to stick a seed in the ground, you get to watch that seed as it turns into a plant, and you're able to treat that individual plant differently to the plant next to it because of the quality of the data that you've got and because of the quality of the application technology that you've got as well. The In time, what that will lead to is eventually you'll even be able to harvest each individual plant, harvest a field on a plant-by-plant basis. So even a field of wheat, a field of corn, whatever it might be, you can choose to select this plant, but leave the one that's next to it. Hmm. And the reason that's significant is because then you you can create the end of it can be the end of monocultures, basically. You know, and, and the reason that we have monocultures which are an entirely unnatural creation is because because of the industrialization of the food process. So it made sense to have to get rid of genetic diversity and to have genetically identical things in a field next to each other because then it was an easy operation for the sprayer it was an easy operation for the combine it made sense in the in the food supply chain because the baker was only dealing with one particular variety of wheat but the inevitable consequence of having monocultures at such a large scale is disease is pests and and that and is and is a degradation of the soil and that that in a in a sense gets us fixed on needing pesticides, needing needing fertilizer, you know, needing to have this this chemical constant chemical input. But what if we were able to create a system where we had maybe the same crop, but a genetic diversity in in that crop, and they were and it was using the soil in a different way, or we could have multiple commercial crops in a field at at the same time. So we could have a plant that's fixing the nitrogen next to a plant that's using the nitrogen we could have a plant that is attracting pollinators pollinators and is only there to attract a pollinator next to a plant that is benefiting from the pollinator we could make an assessment as to the likely profitability of a square meter of soil and if our ai algorithm determines that actually it's unlikely that you're going to create a profit on that particular patch this time then put it into an environmental patch put something that is there just to benefit the environment. Now we don't do that at the moment because we are constrained by the machinery that we use. And so I want to be clear that so we are focusing very much on non-chemical weeding at the moment and doing that on a per-plant basis because we see there's 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 a ready market. But whether that's successful or not, whether small robot companies is successful or not, this per-plant farming, this end to monocultures, is the, is the is the inevitable consequence of where we are going you know as the world gets more precise and i need to produce food in a more accurate way becomes more apparent i need to reduce our impact on the environment becomes more apparent precision will get more precise and that will lead to a per plant precision and then per plant precision will lead to per plant harvesting and that will lead to multi-cultures if you like in in the farmer's field and a complete redesign of what our countryside looks like you know it's tempting to think as we drive through the countryside that it has always looked as it looks today but of course it hasn't it's a product of the of the third agricultural revolution really mm-hmm. which is mechanization and the green revolution you know, chemicals fertilizer that's why the countryside looks as it did to, as it does today 200 years ago it didn't look like it does today and i think in the future we have an opportunity to change it again but in a really positive way that brings back more biodiversity and reduces the impact of farming on the environment while still producing enough food for a growing global population.
0: That uh, that obviously has huge impacts on every aspect of the uh, of the agricultural value chain from, you know, from from seed to to equipment to uh, markets. There there's a lot there's a lot there to dissect. Uh, so, you know, in your mind as that plays out, obviously getting a small robot you know, out into the field is is maybe step number one, so you can actually have the per plant data and the per plant yes. precision. You know what? What at what point? Uh, you know, does it require more than than equipment? I, I'm just trying to kind of play that in my mind as you're talking there, where you know it requires other solutions that maybe a robot can't do.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's a really interesting. It's a really interesting challenge, though, because you know farming. In inverted commas, is a massive industry, and the farmers are actually only one part of that. But think about the the chemical companies, the seed companies, the fertilizer companies, the machinery businesses that are that are innovating, creating great new technologies, great ways of producing food. They are they are all constrained by this third agriculture revolution monoculture idea. And what we're saying is that the fourth agriculture revolution is is going to enable new innovations. You know, this is not. Um, I'm sure you know John Deere and everyone listening to this will be relieved. So this is not like the end of John Deere. You know, I'm sure you know some tiny little startup in uh, in the UK saying that is a big relief to them. But they, this is you know these big companies. Probably many of them will, 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 will still exist and still be thriving in in fifty and hundred years time. But the the innovation can go in a totally different direction. So if you're creating seed dressings that work in the in the monoculture environment, okay, that's great. What is possible if we can create this per plant this per plant view? You know, that's for that's for cleverer people than than, than, me, than me to think about. But the also what is possible with a much much better understanding of the of the soil and you know, if we can do per plant then we can do per per square meter for the for the soil maybe maybe more detailed even than that but we're going to have as part of this this change in agriculture we're going to have a much more detailed understanding of the chemistry physics and biology of our of our soil and all of that information is something that is going to drive the innovation of all of these big players in in agriculture, and I think have really positive impacts on the primary producer, but also have really positive impacts throughout that throughout that that value chain. I think, but only to those businesses that that have their heads up and and adapt. You know those who you know there's there's a, there's a great quote, and I don't know who it's attributed to, but to someone who. Who saw one of the early tractors in the late sort of 1800s, early 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 1900s, and they said the only way this is going to become a big thing in farming is if the big tractor can give birth to a baby tractor, because they were just so convinced that that horses were always going to be the way that the way that things were done. You know, for any company that gets stuck in that in that kind of narrow thinking that the future is always going to be a linear extension of the past. They're to, they're they're in big trouble, I think. But for but for those companies who have their their heads up and are aware of of these of these ongoing global trends and can adapt their business models to suit that, I think they're in they're they're in very good shape. And I think we're still going to need we're still going to need science to produce this stuff. Of course we are. You know we're going to need we're going to need chemistry. We're going to need we're going to need things that we put onto the plants. We're going to need really good soil science. We're gonna need really good machinery. But I think all of those things will be different, soil science, different chemistry, different machinery to, to what we've had in the in the third agricultural revolution.
0: Yeah. Now now for you being a farmer founder, is there anything you can point to so far in your company's early history? I know, three years old, I think you said, that, yeah. that you think if I wasn't a farmer, I probably would have got that wrong. Or, you know, where it's really come in handy?
1: That's a very good question. I mean, I think there is there's an instinctive understanding of the reality of how farmers make decisions and how farms farms operate as businesses that has been useful throughout you know and I can't really think of a of a really great anecdote to 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 share with you on that but I think it's a it's just a sort of a a sense of what's going to wash and what's not going to wash on a on a on a farm and I think part of that is I think one of the things is that we are not looking to replace the farmer at any stage. You know, we're looking for this technology to empower the farmer. And I think the easy the easy mistake to make if you are not from a farming background is to think, well, farming is really tough, isn't it? Let's just go and make their, let's just go and take away all that all that 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 hard work and and, and and make their lives really easy. And actually you have to be careful that you're not removing a sense of purpose for that for that farmer. So understanding, you know, I'm a fourth generation farmer. Understanding what that what that means is is kind of ingrained into into what we're doing. So everything that we are doing is about empowering the farmer, not not replacing them. I think that's an important thing. I, I also think you know the first the first six months of being in small robot company was just going around farm kitchens and sitting down talking to farmers about their lives and about what are the things that you're struggling with what do you find difficult what do you what what's frustrating about about your your role at the moment and and the doors opened there because because I was a farmer you know I think and farmers would would sit down and very openly tell me about tell me about the the stuff they were struggling with and I think if I, I think if I hadn't had that background, that would that would have been that would have been really difficult. But as as much as anything, it's the there were yeah, you know, there the were there were lots of times working on the farm full time where I would I would get frustrated that we did things in a certain way or I'd go, you know, it was late at night and I was sat on the tractor and I was going, you know, this is you know, I need to I need to be doing more than this. Like I want to want to get out there and have more of an impact than than this. But those those frustrations have have been the kind of driving force for for the for the company. You know, solving it boils down to initially trying to solve the problems that I am facing on my farm. Because because there was that there was that time I alluded to when I'd spent that day going through my dad's old books and my grandfather's old books, where I literally sat there and I can remember it really clearly going. Unless something changes here, it's this is this is going to go under, and it's going to go under on my watch, you know, and that's eighty plus years of 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 graft and, and hard work, and and I just you know I just didn't want I didn't want to be the one that it that it that it went wrong for you know, and 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 I've sat opposite uh, farmers who've 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 shared that I can I can see that when I'm talking to them, so that's a uh, that's a, that's a key driver.
0: Yeah. How in your mind, you know, how can small robot company help with that as far as what with with technology like this at your fingertips, what makes you more optimistic that it won't be on your watch that things go under?
1: Well, I think one mindset that we have as a farming industry is that the cost of production is inevitably going to be higher in 5 years time than it is today. You know, and think about how much thinking that drives, you know, because that that's always there. Cost's going to be higher in five years' time. What am I going to do about it? Well, then you start thinking in terms of incremental gains to efficiency. Then you start start thinking in terms of bigger machines. You start thinking in terms of scale. you know I've seen people make crazy, to my mind, crazy land purchase decisions because because they just thought, well, cost of production is going up, so we've just got to get got to get bigger. So we'll just pay whatever it whatever it takes to. To make the farm bigger, and that what if what if that wasn't what the future looked like? You know, what if actually it was going to be cheaper in five years' time for the farmer to to produce a ton of wheat? What if we could use technology that 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 over time reduced the expenses that farmers that farmers were able to incur? What what would that freedom create for the business? And I don't have all the answers to that, but that's that's the question that I would pose to farmers because I do think that's possible. Hmm. I do genuinely think that the that we are gonna see a reverse to that trend and that actually, yeah, it's gonna become it's gonna become more affordable to, to to farm. I think that has exciting implications in terms of new entrants into into farming, new ideas coming into farming. But as much as anything, it is a freedom a freedom to innovate for mm-hmm. the for the farmer it's it's a, it's a chance to potentially remove yourself from the commodity cycle maybe it's about this is just an idea but maybe it's about getting more direct contact with customers maybe it's about diversification you know a lot of the a lot of the kind of themes will be the same as what you're hearing but it's as as what you're hearing elsewhere but it is about a shift in the mindset for the for the farmer i think is what i would love to be able to create
0: Let's talk about the the robots themselves. As as you were leading the team to create these robots that you call Tom, Dick, and Harry. First of all, how, how are they powered, and and what was most important to you as far as the constraints go that they would have to operate under?
1: Okay, so so how are they powered at the moment? Batteries. So re- rechargeable rechargeable batteries that we lithium ion batteries, and they are something that, that we have about four hours battery power at the moment. They're manually replaced. In time we will look to to automate a good chunk of that. I suppose the the constraints to, to to answer that, I mean, scale is one of the things, of course. You know, scale is an inevitable consequence of the farming system that we have today. And we knew that for our initial systems to have any sort of credibility, they would need to cover a reasonable amount of ground. So we're designing our robots to cover 20 hectares of sort of 50 acres-ish in a in a 24-hour period. Now at the moment they're doing that in time it'll get it'll get more than that because at the moment they're doing that but probably in kind of an 8 9 hour window because they're still monitored by our by our engineers the idea of getting getting these things to work 24 hours a day is definitely something that we have have on the horizon you know that kind of full autonomy of being able to just say right go and scan that field leave it to it and come back come back when it's done or send me a message when it's done so scale speed of operation was was one key thing. The other the other thing was trying to get away from tram lines as much as possible. So trying to design something that can travel in between the rows of the rows of wheat. So we're designing so our, our scanning robot, for example, traveling on sort of nine to ten centimeter tires. Most crops in the UK are kind of sown at sort of 12 centimeters to 25 centimeters. So we should be able to have something that travels between the rows of wheat and doesn't doesn't damage them in any way. Hmm.
0: Very interesting, and on the on the business model, the farm the farming as a service business model. So it would seem to me that you would you know would set up a hub, and you would have several of these robots in the hub, and then as a farmer needs them, and would rent them out, and then return them to that hub. How, how do you deal with the problem of like everybody needing them all at the same time?
1: Yeah, so good question. So what you've described is exactly how we envisage it. So yes, yeah, so there is a hub. What we're, what we're going to have is uh, probably you're going to have a Tom robot or multiples of the Tom robots on your farm at all times. So basically it scans the farm. We are The service level that we're working towards is that it scans your farm every two weeks, scans the farm. Once it's finished, it comes back. So depending on the size of your farm, you either have one Tom or you have lots of Toms. That First of all, that gives you a level of data that you don't currently have. So that gives you an understanding of when an operation needs to take place that you don't currently have. So that is from soil monitoring, it's from an understanding of disease, etc, etc. You know, at the moment that is a human being walking into the field, having a look at the, having a look at what's going on and making and making an assessment, but they're not checking that field every single day, you know, they're not checking every every square meter, every every two weeks, you know, so we're going to have a much more detailed data set. And then we will schedule workloads off the off the back of that. But of course, there is there is going to come a time when 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 things need to be done urgently. And really, you just deal with that, you deal with that just by having lots of these lots of these robots. But in the same way, and you you asked the question earlier, what's the difference between a robot and a tractor? Well, one way in which they're going to be similar is that probably what we will have is is a modular workhorse robot. That then has different applications that can be fitted onto it. So it might be that the same robot is doing a soil scanning job, which is something that doesn't need to be done every two weeks, but might be done more infrequently. And the same robot could be do, providing micro doses of chemicals, or could be doing non-chemical weeding. So you will get, so you'll get that that kind of yeah, you'll get applications that are built for the robot. And one one revenue stream that we're looking at creating is being the route to market for all these thousands of sensor companies that are coming into the agriculture industry at the moment and being, okay, well you've got this sensor that fits on the back of a tractor or this sensor that fits on a quad bike. Let's stick your sensor on a on an autonomous robotic platform. And we've got the relationship with the with the farmer. And we can just use your sensor, but use it in a much more repeatable way. You know, and I think there are thousands of of examples of sensors, a compaction meter would be a great example of something that has been designed as a handheld device for a human being to go out there and measure the compaction in the field. But it's a terrible task for a human being because after you've done it fifty times, you know, you lose the will to live. But it's a great task for a robot because the robot's just going to do it in exactly the same way, time and time again. And so you get the reading taken in the same way. And instead of having, you know, your compaction Tests done, you know, you're doing a hundred samples, why not do a hundred thousand samples and have a data set that you can really trust? But to come back to your question, you know, yeah, there's going to be a time when when there's pressure to to do things and really deal with that by having lots of robots. But the other thing I would I would point out is that our idea of our working window is going to shift as well. So let's take planting, for example, or drilling. The at the moment we have I take the UK example. If we're, if we're drilling winter wheat, our drilling window has got later and later and tighter and tighter. And it's got later because we're trying to achieve a good level of weed control with herbicides that are becoming less effective, as we've, as we've previously discussed. So whereas before we might be drilling in late August or mid-September, now many farmers are drilling in October, late October into kind of mid, mid-November. And because the weather is obviously worse, then the conditions are not as good. People have then gone right. Well, my working window is really small, so I'm therefore going to buy a massive machine and a huge drill so that I can cover the ground when 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 the when the working window is there. But because they've got this massive machine, actually, what they've done is narrowed their working window. And we've had a terrible autumn and drilling season in the in the UK this year. And the problem was not that the the fields were too wet. The problem was that the machine was too heavy. And This is an old line from from Professor Simon Blackmore, you know. And if we had a much more, but if we had two things, if we had a much more lightweight drilling robot for one, that would that would increase the working window. But also, if we had a non chemical weeding robot that didn't need to operate a certain time of year, or you know, you didn't need to try and kill all the weeds at one go with a with a chemical, then maybe we could bring that working window forward. So maybe in the UK, the drilling window, rather than being the 15th of october to the 15th of november becomes the 1st of september to the 15th of november and so that time pressure will will dissipate to an extent you know there's still there's still a time of year when you need to do it but it's not it's not going to be the same time pressure that we i think impose on ourselves today
0: great well, I want to ask something I alluded to a little bit earlier, but, I, but I, I want to ask one more question related to it is, you know, your, your approach, small robot companies approach between naming the robots and, you know, calling them robots and just your overall branding. It just has a really sort of fun personality to it. Very, very different than traditional e- equipment manufacturers. You know, is that is that intentional? And where does that come from? That sort of personality behind the brand?
1: Yeah, it is, it's absolutely intentional, and I have to credit my co-founder Ben for this, who who is a, a designer, a brander by 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 background, and he was very clear at the start that we wanted to make this, yeah, something fun and not scary. You know, we don't want the mm. the kind of Hollywood view of here come the here come the droids to uh, to, to to take take over take over the world. Yeah, we it's important to us that we create a brand that farmers like yeah. and that is yeah, fun and friendly and not intimidating and and the personas thing is an important thing because we, we want them to we want the human we want the human people on the farm to interact with the with the robots on the yeah. on, on, on the farm. You know, and that human robot interaction piece is, is a fascinating one in its own right. But we want these robots to be part of the Part of the team, not a replacement, and again, it comes back to the idea of empowering farmers, not 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 replacing them. So yeah, it's all the brand is an, is an important thing, and the, yeah, the, simply naming them Tom, Dick, and Harry has has done wonders for for our for our press coverage and getting the name out there. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, I also think it is again, I think there is something of a changing of the guard in 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 farming. I think the younger generation coming through that have a different relationship with brands outside of their farming, outside of the farming world. And I think that it's time for, for something different to come into the farming world as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you. Last question. This to me, this is the first time I've thought, okay, perhaps it may be possible that the sharing economy takes over in, in the ag equipment space in that, you know, farmers will freely just kind of use sort of as a service in your case, do, do you ever see this becoming something where, you know, farmers actually own the robots and just share them with each other?
1: Great question. Before I started a small robot company, that's what I spent some of my time doing actually was was setting up a local machinery sharing collaboration. Bits of it, I'm sure there's farmers listening to this who might echo the thoughts that bits of it worked and bits of it didn't. Mm-hmm. So to the answer the first bit, yeah, I think as this machinery, as this technology matures, I think it's certainly going to be possible that farmers are, going to, farmers are going to own this. As I say, the main reason for going down this farming as a service route was because we knew it was the best way of getting farmers to, to get this, this new technology onto their farms in an unscary way. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I, think, I think it can be. I, th- I th- I think it will be. I think it will be easier to share these than it than it is to share tractors. Right. Um, the working window is part of that. I think if we can create this technology that does empower farmers, it will. You know, some of those farmers may may be doing different things. You know, they may be going okay. Well, actually, the growth of my business is in this is in this other direction. So if you, you know, if I can team up with with you know two or three other farmers that we're we're, we're sharing these we're sharing these robots out, and one of the guys is running the robots and I'm off growing my business in a different direction, and the third guy's, you know, got his own food brand, and everyone is sharing the output, sharing the costs. I think those sorts of things work well, and automated, highly accurate, highly accurate labour force makes that makes that sharing economy an easier thing to achieve. And again, I would say mindsets are shifting. Mindsets are shifting in in, in farming. You know, if you talk to it's not purely an age thing but you know if I talk to my dad if I talk to someone of my dad's generation there's some pretty ingrained views on 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 how you and how you run a machinery fleet if I talk to someone of, of my generation the mindset's totally different the mindset's totally different and and people are much less. Possessive define themselves um, much less closely to the machines, or if that if that sentence makes sense. And again, I think it's just another one of those examples where where the times are changing, and the future is going to look the future going to look different.
0: Absolutely, Sam. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking all this time and sharing all this with us. And I'm I'm a big fan. I'll be rooting for you guys, and I appreciate you taking the time for the show.
1: Great. Cheers, Tim. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you.
0: really enjoyed that thank you again to sam i'd also like to thank will evans and carl lippert who gave me the idea to get sam on the podcast via twitter so shout out to both of you guys and i really appreciate your continued support for this podcast hey thanks so much for listening i appreciate your time and attention i think this first quarter of uh, 2020 we've put together some of our best content to date If you agree with that, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. We'll be back next week with another interesting ag innovator.